Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve others sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturday at 5.30 and Sunday at 9 and Good morning. Good to be here. Let's pray. Father, we invite your spirit to be present this morning in, in powerful ways that he would uh, make your word live this morning in such a way that it impacts us, changes us, transforms us, encourages us, uh, uh, does what it's intended to do. Um, use it through the power of your spirit. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Tom Holland uh, is actually a secular author, not, not a believer, um, has written a book called Dominion, and it's this huge volume, uh, and in it he makes this fascinating argument, especially for someone who isn't a follower of Jesus. He makes the argument that Christianity has been the dominant movement throughout history and the most influential, and that its influence, even though we live in a secular age, still dominates us and our culture today. And uh, it's an interesting thesis, especially for someone who has a very secular viewpoint. But you know what? He's right. Christianity has been the most dominant movement in the history of the world. And it raises, I think, a fascinating question. How did this tiny messianic Jewish sect, cult, if you will, <laughs> go from being this little thing in an obscure place in the Middle East to having worldwide dominance, changing hundreds of millions of lives, uh, changing the world? How did that happen? That's the story of the book of Acts. The book of Acts kind of lays the foundation for that. One of the interesting things, as you start the book of Acts, one of the things you realize is that was the original plan. I don't know if you picked this up, but if you look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we kind of, it's the key verse of the, if we could bring that up. Did I... There we go. Sorry about that. Um, key verse, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Key verse to the book of Acts, it gives us the structure of the book. The book kind of follows reaching Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Samaria and the ends of the earth. That's the structure of the book. Gives us the mandate that we have, right? We're, we're to be... Witnesses, those are our marching orders, empowered by the Spirit. And this word witness, it's actually 
the Greek word is martyr. A martyr is someone who dies for what they know is to be true. And that word is used 39 times in the book, so it's key. Those are the marching orders. But what I find really fascinating is if you read this verse, you understand it's also a prediction. It's not just a mandate, but the way that it's constructed. He, he says, you, you will be my witnesses. Not, not only in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. That's what's going to happen. And in a sense, it's this vision that Jesus is laying out. And that vision is being fulfilled. He's right. Tells us two things. First of all, it tells us that the church is to be a missional organism. In other words, the church exists for something larger than itself. It exists to reach the world. What happens oftentimes, churches begin to focus inward and think that they're really about the people already here. But the truth of the matter is the church doesn't exist for the people already here. It exists for the people who are not here. We're, we have this mandate. We're to be empowered by the Spirit, and we're to, to reach those who don't know Jesus. That's the mission. And when a church gets off mission, you know what should happen? It should die. And I don't know that you've ever thought about this, but every church in the history of the world has died at some point, right? There's no church that exists today that, is existed, that has existed, and I'm talking about a local church, existed from the time of Jesus, right? There's buildings that are really old, but every ministry has its season when it's fulfilling the mission and eventually they get off mission because that's what things do. They have a life cycle. And then it's okay for a church to die. It's okay. Because something new will be come in its place and be on mission and tar on target. And here's the second thing we should take from that verse. We at Waterstone, we live under that mandate. Right? We are to be a missional organism. In other words, we don't simply exist for ourselves. We exist for something bigger than ourselves. And that is to be witnesses empowered by the Spirit to reach the world with the story of Jesus. We've experienced what he can do for us. And our challenge is to share that with the rest of the world. And it's really interesting. If you go to the book of Acts and read through it, you get to chapter 28 at the end. And you find at the very end of, book of the book of Acts, Paul is in Rome. And he's there teaching about the kingdom of God. And you get this statement. And then the book just ends. And you're going, where's the conclusion? Where's the wrap-up? Where's the summary? I mean, it just, it just ends. I think Luke does that by intent. Because it, the story doesn't end with Paul and Rome. The story is ongoing. Right? The story is still being told. And guess what, folks? We're part of the story. We're part of the story. We're to, to, to live with that missional mandate and fill it, fulfill it, to be witnesses to the end of the earth. Now, if all that is true, it, it raises a really important question. And, and the question is this. How do we fulfill our mission of being witnesses as a church and as God's people? In other words, the, the mandate to be a witness isn't just something true for an individual Christian. It is. But it's also true for the corporate community of the church. It's both and. And the question is how? How do we live that out? Because it's not optional. If we're followers of Jesus, we're to be witnesses. The question is, will we be good ones 
or bad ones? How do we do that well? Well, Acts chapter 2, I think, gives us an overview of how that happens. All right? And, and I want you to remember, we're going to work through that chapter. I want you to, to, to remember three words this morning, okay? And the words are empower, uh, proclaim, and demonstrate. And, and we'll explain each one of those. So how do we live out the calling of being witnesses? The first thing, we have to be empowered by the Spirit. Look at Acts 2, verses 1 through 4. Jesus has uh, uh, come back, spent 40 days with his disciples. He's ascended to the right hand of God as king. He uh, told his disciples to wait. Wait for the Spirit to come on you. Just wait in Jerusalem. So they've been waiting. And this is what happened. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Okay, the Holy Spirit comes and empowers the disciples. I think there's a lot of confusion about the Holy Spirit, so I thought it might be good for us just to take a moment and watch a little video from the Bible Project that I think kind of gives us a good primer or overview for the Spirit. So, so would you watch the screens? If you've ever heard the phrase, the Holy Spirit, and you want to know what it means, where do you start? Well, you have to start on page one of the Bible, where the uncreated world is depicted as this dark, chaotic place. But then above the chaos, God's Spirit is there, hovering, ready to bring about life and order and beauty. Okay, but... What is God's spirit? Yeah, so the spirit is the way the biblical authors talk about God's personal presence. The Hebrew word is ruach. Ruach. Yeah, you got to clear your throat at the end. So what is it? Well, ruach can refer to a number of different things, but what they all have in common is energy. Energy? How so? So there's an invisible energy that makes the clouds move or the tree branches sway. Right. Wind. So in Hebrew, that's ruach. Okay. Now take a big breath. <sighs> So you feel that inside you. Yeah, the air? Well, specifically the energy, right? The vitality in your body that you get from breathing deeply. That too is ruach. And this is the same word used in the Bible to describe God's personal presence. Just like wind and breath are invisible, God's spirit is invisible. Wind is powerful, and so God's spirit is powerful. And just as breath keeps us alive, so God's spirit sustains all of life. Yeah, ruach. Now, as we continue on in the story of the Bible, we see God's Ruach giving special empowerment to people for specific tasks. The first person in the Bible this happens to is Joseph. God's Spirit enables him to understand and interpret dreams. And then it happens to this guy named Bezalel, and he's an artist. God's Spirit empowers him with wisdom and skills. He's given creative genius to make beautiful things in the tabernacle. And we also see God's Ruach empower a group of people called the prophets. They're able to see what's 
happening in history from God's point of view. That's exactly right. And here's the problem as the prophets saw it. While God's Ruach had created a really good world, humans have given in to evil. They've unleashed chaos into it through their injustice. A new type of disorder. Yes, and the prophet said the spirit would come, just like in Genesis 1, but now to transform the human heart, to empower people to truly love God and others. How will this new act of God's spirit happen? Well, centuries pass and we are introduced to Jesus. And at the beginning of his mission, there's this beautiful scene where Jesus is being baptized in the waters of the Jordan River. Yeah, the sky opens up and God's spirit comes and rests on him like a bird. This story is saying that God's spirit is empowering Jesus to begin the new creation. And we see this happening when he heals people or forgives their sins. He's creating life where there once was death. Now, Israel's religious leaders oppose Jesus and they eventually have him killed. But even here, God's spirit is at work. The earliest disciples of Jesus, who saw him alive from the dead, said it was God's energizing spirit that raised Jesus. This is the beginning of new creation. Yes, and it's still going. When Jesus appeared to his closest followers, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And soon after that, the spirit powerfully comes on all of his disciples. So that they can become a part of this new creation and share the good news and learn how to live by the energy and influence of God's Spirit. And so today, the Spirit is still hovering in dark places. Yes, pointing people to Jesus, transforming and empowering them so they can love God and others. And the Christian hope is that the Spirit is going to finish the job. The story of the Bible ends with a vision of a new humanity, living in a new world that's permeated with God's love and life-giving Spirit. All right, <clears throat> it's the day of Pentecost. Pentecost was a, a, a festival uh, that they celebrated. It, it, Pentecost means 50, and it happened 50 days after the festival of first fruits. And, and during this festival, Jews from all of the known world would make their way to Jerusalem. It was to celebrate the beginning of the grain harvest, probably early June, late May. They would gather, and as a result, in Jerusalem, what you had was one ethnicity. These were all very, very devoted Jews, but uh, from all different kinds of cultures. They spoke different languages, had different customs, but they were all gathered in Jerusalem. So that, that's what's going on in the city. The disciples are huddled together in a room waiting, and, and the Spirit comes upon them. And when that happens, tongues of fire come and sit on each of their heads. And you wonder, what, what is going on here? Well, fire represents the personal presence of God. And what is happening is the presence of God in the world had been manifested in the temple. And that presence now is moving from the temple in Jerusalem, the large temple where, where that signified his presence. Moving from that temple into his body, into each individual disciple and, and into the body as a whole. So now we together are the temple of God and individually we are temples of God, uh, temples of the Spirit. And the point being is, is we are now being empowered to be the hands and feet of Jesus so that we can accomplish the mission of being witnesses to the world. That's the beginning of the church with this empowerment of the Spirit. And that's exactly what they begin to do. They begin to speak in tongues. And the word tongue here simply is the, the Greek word 
uh, for language. They start speaking in foreign languages that they don't know. But remember, there's an audience of Jews from all around the world who are gathered there. And these people now are hearing these disciples, these followers of Jesus, speaking in their own language, proclaiming the works of God. And they're going, how can this be? I mean, they don't know my language. They, they don't speak my tongue. How, how, how is this happening? And, and they're confused. Some of them actually think that, that they've had too much wine to drink. <laughs> uh, but that's not what's happening. The, the Spirit is coming and filling the disciples and empowering them for witness. A couple things to note. First thing, the Spirit does not come so much to give us supernatural experiences as much as he comes to empower us for mission and service and to transform our character and our lives. When we think of the Holy Spirit, what we really want out of our relationship with him is for him to give us these supernatural experiences so that we can know what it's like. I mean, all of us want to be in those places where the the veil between the natural and the supernatural gets really thin and we can see on the other side and we'd like that to happen to us. And nothing wrong with supernatural experiences. I I think they would be great. But they're not normative or typical for the Christian life. Peter is not saying here, you know, if you're a believer and have the Spirit, you should speak in tongues. Remember, Paul talked a little bit about this in Acts. There are prescriptive things and descriptive things, and this is a descriptive, this is what happened to them. It doesn't necessarily mean it's what should happen to us. You don't have to speak in tongues. In fact, my guess is that's pretty uncommon, especially when you consider it's a foreign language used in a missional context to be a witness to people who don't know Jesus. That can still happen. I think that can still happen. Miracles still happen. But that's not normative. Usually when God breaks in in a supernatural way like that, it's because there's a larger kingdom purpose at hand that he's trying to accomplish. And that's what you see in the book of Acts. You see tongues in chapter 8 when the movement moves to Samaritans. And then again you see miraculous signs in chapter 10 when it moves to Gentiles. And then in 19 when it's kind of Old Testament saints that don't know the picture, whole picture of the gospel. That's when it's used. So it's for a bigger kingdom purpose, not the edification of the individual person who's having the experience. Um, They still happen, but they're not normative. I think most of the time the Spirit simply wants to empower us uh, for mission service and bring about transformation in our lives. And here's the thing. We have to be empowered by the Spirit to be effective in accomplishing the mission. We can't do it on our own. I I mean, in a sense, this is God's movement. It's going to take God's power. The the mission, in a sense, takes supernatural muscle to to, uh, further the kingdom, to proclaim the kingdom and bear witness to the king isn't an easy task, especially when you consider the fact that we have a, a supernatural enemy who is working against us right, who is actively trying to thwart what we're doing, and, and not only is he working against us, but we are operating in his world. We're in the midst of a cosmic struggle, even though we don't always understand it or see it or feel it, but that's the reality. 
of the world we live in. And if that's true, then we're going to need supernatural help. I like what John Stott writes. He says this, without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the spirit, no Christ-likeness of character apart from his fruit, and no effective witness without his power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the spirit is dead. So to accomplish the mission, we have to be empowered by his spirit. But that raises a really good question. And that is, how do you know if you're operating under the power of the spirit? Or just in your own energy? How do you know? I'm not sure you always do. I'm not going to like this suggestion. But could I suggest that most of the time the Holy Spirit is very subtle? That he operates behind the scene? I mean, if you think about it, the goal of the Holy Spirit isn't to bring attention to himself. The goal of the Holy Spirit is to bring attention to glorify the Father and the Son, to bring attention to Jesus and to God. He isn't looking for recognition. He just wants to operate in the background. I mean, think about Ephesians 5, verse 18. We're told to be filled with the Spirit. And the passage tells us that if we're filled with the Spirit, certain things will happen. What happens if we're filled with the Spirit? Well, the text says that we will speak to one another in hymns and psalms and songs from the Spirit. And we'll give thanks. In other words, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit is worship. And it's not really very supernatural. I wonder if rather than looking and hoping for miraculous signs of the Spirit, we we should focus more on miraculous signs of the Spirit's fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. And that when those get manifested in our lives, we can know that the Spirit is at work in us and through us because that's what the Spirit does. Okay, so if we're going to fulfill the mission of being witnesses, we have to be empowered by the Spirit. But then the second thing that has to happen is we have to proclaim the story of Jesus. I mean, in this setting, the, the people hearing these, these foreign languages are perplexed and s- confused. So, so Peter gets up, and he's going to give an evangelistic sermon. If you read through the book of Acts, there's 10, 11 evangelistic sermons. What's fascinating, this is where they present the gospel, the good news that Jesus is king. Uh, um, what is fascinating, not any two of them are the same. Every time the gospel is presented, it's done a little differently. It's done differently here. What I do think we can do here, though, is go and see principles that seem to be true in every time the gospel is presented. That can kind of inform us to teach us how to share the gospel. Uh, um, Okay, let let me give you uh, just a few of them that stood out to me. 
The first thing. Uh, um, well, let's look at 2.14. Then Paul, Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. And he said, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain to you uh, this to you. Listen and careful, carefully to what I say. So he's going to tell them the story of Jesus. But the first thing you note is he adapts his message or how he shares it with them uh, to their context. He, 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 he has the message, in a sense, meet them where they're at. What do I mean by that? Well, who's he talking to? These are really committed, faithful Jews who come to Jerusalem. I mean, these are devout people. So if you're going to talk to devout Jews about Jesus being the Messiah, where's a good place to start? Well, with the Old Testament. And, and what does Peter do? He, he does that. He quotes from Joel chapter 2, this prophecy that talks about the Spirit coming and giving people dreams and visions and empowering them. And that's just what happens. So use Joel 2 and these Jews hear that and they go, oh yeah, I, I read that. I know what that, they get that. And then he goes to Psalm 16 where, where David talks in hidden ways about the resurrection that he will not just be, be submitted and stay in death, but be raised. And the Jews listening go, oh, I, I know that psalm. I, I understand. He, he's meeting them where they're at. He's contextualizing the message so that they can hear it. He's just being a good missionary. What does a good missionary do? He figures out how the people he's trying to reach can hear the message in a way that they understand, in their language, in a way that touches the deepest issues of their heart. How do we speak to people so they get it? Now, we don't want to change the essential message, but we do want to adapt it to their context. You know, when I started at Waterstone 35 years ago, if you told me one day we would do this evangelistic outreach called Alpha, and we would hold it in a brewery, I would have laughed at you. Because <laughs> 35 years ago, you wouldn't, if you did anything in a brewery, you were in trouble. <laughs> now the church is meeting there to reach. Why? Because that's their context. That's their world. That's coming into their space. That's learning to proclaim the message in a way that they can get. It's speaking to the needs of their, their heart. You have to contextualize the message so that they can hear. The second thing you, you learn from Peter's sermon is that he tells what I would call the essential facts of the Jesus story. In other words, the gospel. And I, I want you to listen to Jesus, uh, Peter's sermon, and, and I want to see if you can pick out the essential ingredients that we have to explain to people that comprise the gospel or the story of Jesus. Here, here's P Peter's sermon. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. If you have the next 
uh, verse 36 or 32. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and pours out what you now hear and see. Okay, I want us to go back to the previous slide. And I want you to look through me and see if you can pick out the essential facts. Number one fact, Jesus of Nazareth lived, right? They saw him. They knew he was real. They watched him work miracles. They saw how he treated other people. He lived. The fact that Jesus lived is an essential fact of the gospel. It's important for us, right? Because we're followers of Jesus. If we're followers of Jesus. We're to, to, to know and follow how he lived in this world. So we need to understand his life. Fact number one. Second fact, um, God, this man was handed over you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. Jesus died. Why is that important? <laughs> well, Jesus' death accomplishes a whole lot of things. In his death, he, he defeats sin. He defeats Satan. He defeats death itself. In his death, he goes to the cross and takes on himself our sin, becomes a substitute for us. It's called the atonement. Takes on our sin so that we might become his righteousness. This, this, this cross means has huge implications for us. The number one being that we can now be forgiven. Okay? So we have to share about Jesus' death. But Jesus... Jesus lived, Jesus died. Third fact, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death. Why is the resurrection important? Well, the resurrection is part of how he defeats sin, right? He overcomes sin, death, and Satan by being raised again. It tells us that his work on the cross was sufficient and he was victorious. And as a result, we too will be resurrected. So you've got Jesus' life, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection. That's the whole story, right? No. We live the next thing out, and it's one of the most important things to share about the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that Jesus, by his death and resurrection, became king. Gospel, the word euangelion, is always an announcement about a new king. That's the essence of the gospel. So look with me uh, at the, on the next slide, verse 32. Or verse uh, 32. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it, exalted to the right heaven of God. He has received the Father uh, from the Father of the promised Holy Spirit. What's the right hand of God? That's the place of authority. In other words, he's put in the position of king. Now look at verse 36. This is kind of a summary statement. Therefore, let all Israel be sure to this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord, who rules over all, and Messiah. What's the word Messiah mean? It's the Hebrew word for anointed one. In other words, it's their way of talking about the king. What does the word Christ mean? Christ means anointed one. How is Jesus the Christ? Jesus is the Christ because he now rules as king. 
Kings are the ones who are anointed. Why is that so important? Because it changes how we respond to who Jesus is and what he's done, right? If Jesus is simply our Savior, and he is our Savior, and that's great. But, but a Savior is something you can put in your back pocket, right? And take out when you get in desperate situations. But if Jesus is not simply our Savior, but our King then that's a different ball game, right? You don't put a king in your back pocket. <laughs> but we treat Jesus simply as our Savior. That why, that's why we tell people, you, you can invite Jesus into your life. Look, Jesus doesn't want to be part of your life. He wants you to be part of his life. <laughs> he doesn't want to just come in and be a part of your story. He wants you to become part of his story. <laughs> do, you, do you know in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as Savior 16 times, but he is referred to as as king, Christ, Lord, over 400 times. And if he's king, then our response has to be fundamentally different. He doesn't want to be a part of your life. He wants to be the center of your life. The story isn't about you. The story is about him. And you're invited to be part of his story, accomplishing his mission in this world of furthering the kingdom. So... Peter puts the gospel into their context, meets them where they're at. He shares the key ingredients of the story, Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and the fact that he now reigns as king, his ascension. And then the third thing that Peter does is he challenges his audience to respond. Look at verse 23 and 36. This man... Jesus was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. In other words, Jesus is saying, you're going to have to respond to this because you're responsible for what happened. Now, in a way, that's a, that's a strange comment, isn't it? I mean, think about the timeline, right? Jesus dies, is resurrected, and then he spends 40 days with his disciples explaining the kingdom. Then he's ascended into heaven, okay? Then a bit later, Pentecost comes. When Pentecost comes, these Jews from all around the world make their way to Jerusalem. So most of the people that Peter is talking to weren't even there when Jesus was crucified, if they're not even there when Jesus is crucified, then how in the world are they responsible for his death? How can Jesus, Peter say, and it says it twice, it's a point of evidence, you did it. You did it. And they're going, what do you mean? Well, here's the point. Jesus <laughs> didn't die simply because of the Romans and the Jewish leaders. Jesus died because of you and me and our sin. We're as responsible for his death as the people who were there that day that actually nailed him to the cross. You've seen the movie, The Passion. It was uh, put out by, directed by Mel Gibson. It's just the story of the crucifixion of Jesus. There's only one place in that movie where Mel Gibson 
appears. Um, when Jesus is nailed to the cross, you see a hand with a hammer pounding the nail into Jesus' hand. The hand there is Mel Gibson's hand. And it's his way of saying, I'm partly responsible for what happened to Jesus. And we all are. So notice what happens. They, they get it. Uh, um, right? When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off and whom, for all whom the Lord will call. What's happening? Peter's saying, okay, here's how you respond. You repent. What does it mean to repent? It means to totally change your direction. Change your mind about Jesus. Change what you're living for. Rather than living for yourself, now you need to live for King Jesus. It, it, it's this radical commitment. But, but it's not just a matter of an intellectual belief. It's not just a matter of inviting Jesus. It's not a bad thing, but it's more than simply an invitation to be part of your life. It's this decision of your heart and your mind and your will that says, you know what? I'm going to make him king, and he's going to rule my life. That's repentance. And they manifest that through baptism. Baptism is a strange custom to us, but what they did is they took someone and they dunked him into water and they brought him up. And it was this notion that you're dying to yourself, but you're being raised for the sake of following somebody new. It was this declaration of allegiance. And I think that's what the New Testament means when it talks about faith. Is this commitment of allegiance to Jesus as king. That's New Testament faith. And it's what they do. Notice what happens. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and, get this, about 3,000 were added to their number that day. What's really interesting about that, he doesn't say 3,000 came to Jesus that day. That's not how he phrases it. He says 3,000 were added to our number. What's his point? He said, oh, this is the formation of the church. And when you become a follower of Jesus, what you're doing is you're becoming part of his community, part of his, his, his church. Uh, um, this is where it starts. Now understand this. The New Testament doesn't have a category for people who follow Jesus but are not part of the community of faith, the church. That category of just you and Jesus doesn't exist in the framework of the New Testament. In the New Testament, my mind said, if you were a follower of Jesus, that meant you were part of this, the local body, the expression of his people in that place. That went hand in hand. And that's what happens here. They become part of the church. Okay, let's, let's figure out where we're at. To, to be witnesses, we have to be empowered by the Spirit, and we have to proclaim the story of Jesus. Then the third thing that has to happen is we have to demonstrate kind of this radical discipleship, and it's something we do together as his church. Notice Acts chapter 2, verse 42. 
They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. The word there, devoted, um, means to, to consistently commit yourself to something, to, to, uh, to put into practice new things. In other words, he's saying they devoted themselves, they consistently practiced a new set of habits and disciplines, uh, kind of practices of life. So that it resulted in a different way of living. And then he enumerates the things that they devoted themselves to. And I think this is really important. The first thing, there's going to be four of them, is the apostles' teaching. In, in other words, they committed themselves to learning. Why was learning such an essential part of how the early church lived out its faith? Well, if you go to back to Matthew 28, what has happened to these people, when they follow Jesus, they actually are becoming what? His, his disciples, right? We're to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them all that I have commanded. Okay? Um, what is a disciple? The word literally means learner. When you became a disciple, you committed yourself to one teacher. And, and what you did is you listened to what he taught and you tried to embody it in your life so that you as a disciple would become his follower and eventually become like the teacher. That's the challenge for us. We have made Jesus our king. So now we're disciples. We're to be learning all that he commanded, figuring out how to obey it so that we can become like him. And that's a lifelong process. Now, it's interesting to me, some people think, well, you know, there's believers and then there's disciples. You know, believers are just people who invited Jesus into their life. But, but disciples are the really committed. You know, that distinction doesn't exist in the New Testament. <laughs> if you're a believer, you're a follower of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're to be his disciple. In other words, you're to be learning what it means to have Jesus as your king. And that's what they're learning. What does it mean... For me, if Jesus really is my king, what's all the implications? And if he's my king, then it changes everything in my life, right? It has something to say about my work. It has something to say about my relationships. It has something to say about how I do marriage. It has something to say about my sexuality. It has something to do with how I treat my enemies. It has something to do with, with how I handle my money. Because all of that is impacted because I have this new allegiance to this king who is now at the center of my life that wants to change everything about me so that I can become a consistent follower of his and become like him. So we are all disciples. Now, we may be at different places in our discipleship, struggling with different things. All disciples struggle trying to head the right way. That's okay. But the goal is to become like Jesus. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to learning. By the way, that's why we're doing Wednesdays at Waterstone. Right? We're challenging people to go further in their discipleship with Jesus. And I think this last week we had 150 people turn out for, for Wednesdays at Waterstone, which, which is just awesome. Discipleship, learning. Second thing, koinonia. In the text, it, it says they devoted themselves to fellowship. But, but fellowship is kind of a weird word, isn't it? I, I mean, other than in a religious context, where do you ever use the word fellowship? <laughs> you don't. 
You don't leave the bar and say, boy, that was a great evening of fellowship. That's, that's not, the only time you, you might have a small group and say, oh, that was a great evening of fellowship. It's just this religious word, and, and it really doesn't mean much. It just means we hung out. That's not koinonia. Koinonia is a word that literally means sharing or participation. And what he's saying is they devoted themselves to this practice of sharing their resources uh, and all that they had, their energy, their wealth, their time with others. In fact, you see it lived out in the next few verses. And this, this makes us uncomfortable, but it's what we have to wrestle with. All the believers were together and had everything in common, right? Because they're practicing koinonia. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the court. They, they suddenly said, oh, my stuff isn't just my stuff. i got to share it with the rest of God's people. Now, that's how it expressed itself in their day, how it's going to express itself in our context is a little different. But if we're faithful, it's going to express itself. And here's the fundamental transition. When you begin the Christian life, you're pretty much oriented towards yourself. But as you become Jesus' disciple and begin to follow him, that orientation towards yourself begins to change and it begins to turn outward. And as it turns outward, it turns to others. So now you use your resources, not simply to consume on you, but to participate in the body and to give to those who have need and to further the kingdom. That's the practice of koinonia. One of the places I've experienced this in my life over the last few years has been through my small group that I'm involved in. Uh, um, As Barb got sick and we were stuck in Wisconsin, Uh, Two of the guys that are close to me hopped on a plane and flew out just to sit in the hospital to be with us. That group has given us all kinds of resources, more meals than I can number. They pray for us. They practice koinonia. They share their lives and their resources with us. Two more things really quick. Uh, Breaking bread. That's a fancy way of saying they ate meals together. (laughs) And eating meals in a Jewish context is really important because it's an act of intimacy. It's a place where you have deep conversation. It's an act of inclusion. Now think about what's happening. You have 3,000 people who are meeting in the temple, listening to the teaching. They're getting together in small groups. They're gathering in homes. And then they're doing meals together. That means you were having people you didn't know very well, right? Because all these Jews were from different parts of the world. They didn't have places to stay. But, but they're kind of weaving together this new community. And they're doing, the point of this is you do life together. That's the expression of what it means to be God's people. You know, online church was great during the pandemic. It's not a great way to do church long term. Why? Because it's really hard to break bread together and have koinonia and be weaved into each other's lives. It's all you're doing is watching a service on TV. Uh, Sometimes that's the only option if you're shut in or you can't get here. I understand that and that's great. But, but it's not really church as it was designed to be. Then the last thing they pray, and these were Jewish people who were used to worship in the synagogue, which was the recitation of Jewish prayers. So this is really just talking about the notion that they, they worshiped together. 
So here's the point. The disciples who followed Jesus uh, uh, became part of this community that did life together. They, they, they met in large groups and small groups. They did meals together. They weaved into the fabric. It was all done together. The problem is we have so individualized our faith. You know, it's me and Jesus that we miss out on the corporate expression that's a, what's at heart in the New Testament. And I want you to notice the result. Verse 47. And the Lord added to the number daily those who were being saved. I am fascinated by the early church's methodology of evangelism. Do you know what it was? Their strategy it was to be such a radical community that did life together as it followed Jesus. It, it was so unique that the people outside would see what was going on in church, how they loved one another and lived out their faith. They would look at that and say, oh, I want to be part of that. I want to be part of that. It wasn't about programs. It wasn't about great preaching. It wasn't about great music. It wasn't about evangelistic. It was simply about doing life in such a way that it was so unique and so radical that people outside, that's what I want. That's what I want. All right. So if we want to be witnesses, we have to be empowered by the Spirit. Tell the story of Jesus. And live out radical discipleship together. By the way, you may not have noticed this, but that is really the mission of Waterstone. Look at our mission statement. To be a people empowered by the presence of Jesus, that's being empowered by his spirit. To proclaim his kingdom, which is the story of Jesus. And demonstrate his love, justice, and mercy to our neighbor, which is radical discipleship that we do together. That's it, folks. That's what we're about. You know, I have been involved in about 10 churches over the course of my life. Seven of them have been on mission. Three of them have not. And they should have just died. I have learned something from my experience in those three churches. You know what it is? I don't want to waste my life in a church that is not making a difference for the kingdom. I don't want to be part of a church that has no spiritual power. I don't want to be part of a church that isn't telling and proclaiming the story of Jesus in the kingdom. I don't want to be part of a church that isn't trying to live out radical discipleship. I don't want to be part of a church that doesn't have a heart for God and his kingdom, his rule and reign as king in our world and in our lives. I don't need a church to be perfect. But I do need a church that is striving to truly be followers and disciples of Jesus together. That's what I need. And by the way, that's the, wa- the reason why I stay at Waterstone. You know, I, I don't need to be here anymore. I'm getting old. <laughs> but I believe in this ministry. And I believe in the leadership and I believe in its values, and I believe in its mission. And that's enough to keep me here, because it's a great place to be. Amen?